0: I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thank you to our generous underwriters on Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. And Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans, by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Tuesday, October 25th, we're studying Joshua chapter 11, verses 1 to 23. Joshua leads Israel in the conquest of the northern part of the land of Canaan, as the Lord continues to give cities and kings into their hands. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Jeremiah Johnson. Pastor Johnson serves at Glory of Christ Lutheran Church in Plymouth, Minnesota. Pastor Johnson, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Thanks. Great to be here. Give us some context to get started, Pastor Johnson. We're in Joshua 11. What should we know about the book? What's been happening leading up to this chapter? Right. That's actually a very helpful thing. So um, we can kind of divide it
1: up so far into kind of just basically two sections. Um, Chapters one through five, uh, you know, it's the death of Moses. Joshua assumes command. um, And but one thing to note that we're going to hear reinforced later on is that joshua is simply continuing the commands given to moses there's it's very important to understand the continuity between these and how joshua is he, he's a good soldier following orders um uh, so we had we had a lot of uh a preparation work and whatnot of them crossing over the, the the jordan we had that similarity um between the red sea and uh and the jordan they both crossed uh, uh, you know uh crossed on dry ground. And so it automatically invites us to be thinking of this really, as we might say, a, either the continuation or Exodus stage two, that'll come into play a little bit later on. Um, and we started off though with a pair of, um, started off with a pair of conquests. There was Jericho and I, uh, And of course, Jericho, everybody knows the story of Jericho. Uh, You know, they march around the city, seven time, blow the trumpets and all that good stuff. And the uh, the walls come come blank down. Now, of course, as I'm sure you guys discussed already, is that one of the things that that the, the unusual conquest of Jericho underscores that we're going to still see continue today is the fact that this is not the brilliant military strategy of the Israelites. This is the Lord. Fighting for them. It reminds me of that passage back in um I want to say what is it, Exodus twelve, you know, um, the Lord will fight for you, you only have to be still. Yeah, uh, you know, he told the Israelites as they're leaving Egypt. And I think that theme has not been dropped. And so, um, now, of course, when they go and uh we've got the the interluding uh, or the intervening part about um how they, they weren't supposed to take anything and Achan takes some of the spoils of war for himself, which by the way, was normally, that's how you would have done it, right? You know, you're, you're the victors, you get to take whatever you want. But not so with the Israelites, this, this idea of things devoted to destruction or things simply devoted to the Lord. In other words, this is the Lord's battle and therefore they're the Lord's spoils and he can do with them as he chooses and the people can't. And so we see that kind of uh, on display. Then what happens when the Israelites don't follow the rules? They go to, uh, to conquer uh, I, which is of course a much smaller town with uh, with much uh, less significant uh, fortifications, and they fail miserably. And, uh, and the whole point of that is to contrast the fact that that when you know when they're following the Lord's commands, things go well. When they don't follow the Lord's commands, when they do things their own way, doesn't go well. So then we kind of transition in per, I know, chapters nine through 11, we sort of have the rest of the story, the rest of Canaan. And it's summarized rather quickly. First, we have the Gibeonites, and they're the ones who kind of trick Israel in thinking they're far away. And they're the only people in the land who essentially plea for peace. Um, and there's some debate whether or not, like, how noble are the Gibeonites really? Are they actually repenting and whatnot? I'm sure you covered that a- already. But then we get these last two chapters of the section, chapters ten and eleven. Um, chapter ten basically is the southern campaign with the five allied kings of the Amorites, um, and how you know Joshua and uh, the Israelites they conquered them. And now today in chapter eleven we're going to get the northern campaign, uh, the, the kings of Hazor and some of the other cities as well. So that's uh, that's in a nutshell.
0: All right, well, that that sounds good, and we want to keep in mind that the Lord is doing the fighting. That's what we saw at the end of chapter 10 particularly, where this long section of just one city after another, not a whole lot of battle details, but that was standing in the background the whole time, and that continues to be in the background of our text today. So we're going to read Joshua chapter 11 this morning. When Jabin, king of Hadzor, heard of this, he sent Jobab, king of Madon, and to the king of Shimron, and to the king of Akshaph. And to the kings who are in the northern hill country, and to the Arabah south of Kinroth, and in the lowland, and in Napheth-dor on the west, and to the Canaanites in the east and the west, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, and the Jebusites in the hill country, and the Hivites under Hermon in the land of Mizpah. And they came out with all their troops, a great horde, in number like the sand that is on the seashore, with very many horses and chariots, And all these kings joined their forces and came and encamped together at the waters of Merom to fight against Israel. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them, for tomorrow at this time I will give over all of them slain to Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. So Joshua and all his warriors came suddenly against them by the waters of Merom and fell upon them. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel, who struck them and chased them as far as great Sidon and Misrephoth Mam, and eastward as far as the valley of Mizpah. And they struck them until he left none remaining. And Joshua did to them just as the Lord said to him. He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. And Joshua turned back at that time and captured Hadzor, and struck its king with the sword, for Hadzor formerly was the head of all those kingdoms. And they struck with the sword all who were in it, devoting them to destruction. There was none left that breathed. And he burned Hadzor with fire. And all the cities of those kings and all their kings Joshua captured and struck them with the edge of the sword, devoting them to destruction, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. But none of those cities that stood on mounds did Israel burn, except Hadzor alone. That Joshua burned. And all the spoil of these cities and the livestock the people of Israel took for their plunder. But every man they struck with the edge of the sword until they had destroyed them, and they did not leave any who breathed. Just as the Lord had commanded Moses his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua, and so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. So Joshua took all that land the hill country, and all the Negev, and all the land of Goshen, and the lowland, and the Arabah, and the hill country of Israel, and its lowland from Mount Halak, which rises toward Seir as far as Baal-gad, in the valley of Lebanon, below Mount Hermon. And he captured all their kings, and struck them, and put them to death. Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. There was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel, except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. They took them all in battle. For it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts, that they should come against Israel in battle, in order that they should be devoted to destruction, and should receive no mercy, but be destroyed, just as the Lord commanded Moses." And Joshua came at that time and cut off the Anakim from the hill country, from Hebron, from Debir, from Anab, and from all the hill country of Judah, and from all the hill country of Israel. Joshua devoted them to destruction with their cities. There was none of the Anakim left in the land of the people of Israel. Only in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod did some remain. So Joshua took the whole land, according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses. And Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel, according to their tribal allotments, and the land had rest from war. That's our text for today. That's Joshua 11, verses 1 to 23. All right, so Pastor Johnson, we're in northern Canaan this time. We heard about southern Canaan at the end of chapter 10. A lot of different kings and cities and peoples named, some familiar, some not as familiar. But in verse 4 of that opening section, we get a description of their army, and it sounds familiar from elsewhere in Scripture. How does does Joshua describe the army that comes against Israel in verse 4?
1: right if we uh, we remember of course the theme that Joshua is continuing you know Moses's um, Moses' ministry so to speak, this sounds awful a lot like when uh, uh, when the Egyptian army was described right that they they came out with horses and with chariots and remember chariots are a fairly recent technological development and of course they're you know they're they're terrifying they're the tanks kind of the ancient world um, but uh, but it very much is similar to uh, to Egypt, and I think what it does is the similarity in description between the two really invite us to to think back to how the Lord dealt faithfully with Israel and protected them then it helps us to sort of anticipate then that um, that they're going to do much the same. Um, and if you uh and if you recall, uh, when Moses sung? Uh, you know, his song after the the defeat of, of the Egyptians in Exodus 15, you know, it has these famous lines about the horse and the rider have been thrown into the sea, but there's also even reference to the chariots themselves. It, it, they're very, very verbally similar in this way. And so I think it, it will, and actually in addition to that, now that I'm, I'm mentioning it, um, this same phraseology will also get echoed later on in the Psalms. When the, uh, the conquest of, uh, of the Egyptians is recited for the, the, the people of Israel as, uh, you might say, as confidence for them for you know, how, what the Lord has done in the past. And so, I mean, slice this however you will. But here's the point is that what this is doing is it's, it's giving reassurance to not only the Israelites at the time, but also the Israelites in generations afterwards. And arguably, we could say for us as well. That the lord's consistent i mean he's he's always mm-hmm. he's the uh he's yahweh sabaoth you know uh the lord of armies and he's going to be the one who uh, who delivers his people even from you know from these overwhelming numbers and these you know insurmountable odds hmm. the, the
0: way that this is described i think it- is is all those things that you've said, and it recalls all those those events that you've said. And I think as well, just thinking about the book of Joshua, as you laid it out, we're coming to that that turning point in the book of Joshua. And we even heard, you know, the land had rest from war. It seems like this description of the army, this is the the final battle. I mean, and you can kind of you get a sense of that from the description, not only in the in looking backward to, for example, the Red Sea crossing, as you've mentioned, but also even looking forward and other accounts of battles. And I, I know we're going to get, I think, toward the book of Revelation in, in the end anyways, but mm. even here already, just hearing this, you know, like everybody's coming together. You've got this great horde like sand on the seashore. I mean, right. I'm thinking of, of some of the descriptions of battles in the book of Ezekiel in particular, verses, or chapters 38 and 39, and thinking forward to Revelation. It's, it's almost like, like we're Revelation seeing a, a 20, picture thinking of, that. of? Yeah, perhaps that. Yeah, I mean, and, and other. I'm, the chapter numbers aren't exactly coming to mind for Revelation right now, but just this idea of a we're coming to the final battle here in Joshua 11 is uh, that's what the description army makes me think of. Right. Well, you know, the, the funny
1: thing is, is that um, if I'm not mistaken, this is generally in the region of Ahar Megiddo or what we usually call mm-hmm. Armageddon, um, if I'm yeah. not mistaken, because that's the 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 region. See this is it's a good observation. Um, you're basically uh I think painting this almost as a bookend along with their respite from Egypt, which is which is probably right. And a really nice theological point too, that the Lord kind of from beginning to end takes care of the enemies of his people and uh, and delivers them out of it. I think that'll we'll see that same theme basically reinforced later on. But at least while you were talking, it would make me think of Revelation chapter 20. Um, uh, and you'll notice some of the similarities in terms of the description about how they're, uh, the sand on the seashore, it's, and it says in Revelation 20, it says they will come out and deceive the nations that are at four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. You have almost exactly the same phrase there in Joshua yeah. 11. And they marched over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in his beloved city. This is always my favorite part. And then like, you know, you expect, um, you know, you expect this 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 great battle to ensue, right? But here's how it ends. But fire came down from heaven and consume them, right? It wasn't this giant colossal battle, you know, with lances flashing and swords slashing. It was, you know, the Lord just basically sends fire down from heaven. And you notice, you notice that the uh, the saints don't even fight. And so I think you're right to connect this with Revelation because, once again, um, as you read in here, we saw at least three or four different um, times that it was the Lord who emphasized that he was fighting. If you look at, at verse six, um, if you don't mind, I'm going to turn right, I'm going to turn back to that here. Uh, Go right ahead. Yeah, back in verse six, he says, Don't be afraid of them for uh, tomorrow at this time. I will give over all, that's the Lord talking, slain Israel, he's going to give them over. Then in, again, in verse eight, it says the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel. Uh, and then finally, in verse nine, probably not quite as clearly, but the the Lord did to them, or i uh, sorry, Joshua did to them just as the Lord had said to him. So, I mean, you clearly see that, that the Lord is not only, he's the architect of, This battle, but he is also the victor as well. And Israel is just kind of there along for the ride.
0: Sure, I I think you know Israel in Joshua eleven plays a more active role than what you read from Revelation twenty, and and even in the Red Sea crossing, they play a more active role. But still, the subject and verbs that we encounter in Joshua eleven do lead us to see that the Lord is the one who's doing it. Even as, and we talked a little bit about this in the text from Joshua 10 at the very end, where, where you see Joshua and all Israel are doing this, but there's, the Lord is also doing it. And, and that continues certainly into Joshua chapter 11. And I think in the verses that you pointed out, even as, as for example, Joshua did to them, just as the Lord said to him earlier in, in that section where it says, oh, where did it go? The Lord gave them into the hand of Israel who struck them and chased them as far as, I mean, that's the Lord doing this. Right. And, and that's an important thing to keep in mind, certainly for the book of Joshua. And, and as we said, going forward all the way to the book of, of Revelation, that the Lord is the one doing the fighting, right. and, and he does so here for, for Joshua and Israel.
1: Well, and I think there's a nice parallel here too, with the way that we talk about faith as well. Um, I was having a conversation just the other day with somebody and said, well, pastor, tell me, like, do we, are we the ones who believe or it's the Holy Spirit who does? And, And the answer, of course, is yes. I mean, I think there's a strong parallel here that, that yes, faith is indeed a gift of the Holy Spirit, but that does not mean that we are somehow inactive in it though, either that we are indeed the ones who are believing, but it's not a belief that comes from us. I think in much a similar way here. Yeah, sure. The Israelites are fighting. There's no doubt about that. But the victory is not ultimately theirs. You know, it's the uh, the Lord who is fighting with and through them. And I think there's, you know, there's a really nice parallel there with faith. Mm,
0: yeah, I think so. Was, when you started talking about faith, the the verse that came to my mind is in First John chapter five. I'm going to try to find it. Where where? And I because I want to say it as as he says it. He talks about overcoming the world. It, yeah, First John five uh-huh. verse four for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world and this is the victory that has overcome the world our faith you know how how is it that faith actually overcomes the world it is because faith receives what God is doing right. and that's certainly been the case in the book of Joshua as you pointed out with the contrast between Jericho and Ai earlier when they listen to the Lord's word and trust him and do what he says they overcome but when they don't they lose and and Chapter 11 is just more of the same and and kind of this fever pitch leading to the climax the lord is is finishing off these final enemies even as they all gather together and we've you know we've seen this before in the book of Joshua you mentioned earlier in chapter 10 those five kings that that come together but this really seems to be the last gasp mm-hmm. where where everyone comes from far and wide to say you know what we've got one shot at this we're going to throw all of our our eggs into one basket. I'm mixing my metaphors here, but you know (laughs) what I'm talking about, right? Everyone's coming together and we're all going to attack the Lord at the same time. And even that doesn't work. Right.
1: Yeah. Even when they throw their full forces against it, they still couldn't, they still couldn't do it. They didn't have the strength.
0: Yeah, that's right. So, and it is uh, you. You were making the connection of the Red Sea. I, I even noticed it in verse five that they're encamped together at the waters, right. the waters of Merom. I don't, I don't know where that is, but it is striking that it's once again by waters here. Mm-hmm. Uh, very fitting, given what the Lord has done at the Red Sea, and the Jordan River, and now here at the waters of Merom, He de- delivers this victory to his people. So it, it is a, a complete victory. And Joshua does as the Lord says. He hamstrings their horses. He burns the chariots with fire. And then Joshua turns back. He goes to to Hadzor really seems to be the the primary place where the Lord's wrath is going to be poured out. Right. And we get this phrase that happens it comes up a couple times in the text that the people of Israel they devote things to destruction. What's being, what's being conveyed in that language? Yeah, that is some really rich terminology because devoted
1: has this kind of almost sacramental sense to it. I mean, sometimes it just, it, but it, it's never simply a matter of being destroyed. Um, it's when things are devoted to destruction, sometimes that actually means that they are literally destroyed. Other times it actually does not mean that they are, uh, that they're destroyed. But in all the cases, though, it indicates that those things are the Lord's, whether they are destroyed or not. And so, so for example, sometimes um, the same word can indicate something that's going to be used in the temple and exclusively. So in other words, it's fully devoted to it. You know, you can't use it for anything else or even just to sit in the Lord's treasury. Um, it, It has sacrificial kind of connotations to it. So, you know, so To some extent, you might almost call every like every animal sacrifice is kind of devoted to destruction in a way because it's it's set apart for the Lord and it's going to be killed and poured out because it belongs to Him and so and that's a really key point. This is not just like um, wanton killing or uh, you know or just people going on uh, you know some kind of destruction spree. This is not this is not napalming. This is not. Um, what, what's that called? Scorched earth policy, right? This is not just a scorched earth policy. And I think you can easily get the impression um, that that seems to be what they're doing. But you'll notice, like as your example with Hazor, um, that's the only city that was totally burned to the ground. Uh, the other ones were spared, if you notice. Um, now, not all the people were, but um, but the uh, not all the cities were destroyed. And even we can get later on too when we talk about how fair all of this sounds. Um, were all the people actually killed? Uh, we, we seem to get a little bit of, uh, we may have a little bit of hyperbole here. Uh, but anyway, back to devoted to destruction. Um, one of the things that does become clear with that whole story with Achan is that when something is devoted to destruction, means it's devoted to the Lord, that means, you know, the people don't get to do with it as they please. You know, as I mentioned, the normal practice for any conquering army is to, you know, uh, basically you conquer it, it's yours, right? Uh, Finders, keepers, losers, weepers. And uh, and so Achan was just doing like the uh, other nations would, but the Israelites were not to be, this was not a normal conquest. Uh, And so they, uh, you know, Achan wasn't allowed to take those things as plundered. And oftentimes either the people or even the things sometimes were intended to be destroyed. Why? Because they would endanger God's people. And I think that's one of the most important things to note. um, Because, you know, these, these, uh, these pagans are, um, you know, the Lord had actually already warned them about not intermarrying with them and how their foreign gods would basically, you know, um, would drag them down and we see all that played out of course throughout first and second samuel first and second kings is those remnants or pockets of of places where they did not completely destroy the uh the people you know what the lord warns them about is exactly what happens they end up getting drug into um you know idolatry and worshiping foreign gods
0: mm. right and so things are devoted to destruction according to the Lord's word. As you said, it's, it's very important to notice in verse 14 that there is spoil taken. Only Hadzor alone is, is destroyed fully. There is spoil in cities, livestock. There is plunder taken in this case. It does talk about the those who were struck with the edge of the sword. We'll We'll come back to that again later, as you mentioned. In verse 15, we, we find out that this was what the Lord commanded Moses, and Moses had commanded Joshua, and Joshua does faithfully. It's been a little while since we've talked about Moses. I mean, Moses always looms large over the Old Testament, and, and particularly in the book of Joshua, as he's he died right at the beginning of the book. And yet, it's been a while since we've thought about Moses. We've got about just a couple minutes here, two minutes before the break, Pastor Johnson, help us to, to get started on what we're, we see by the mention of Moses here in verse 15.
1: Right. Like I mentioned earlier, this is profound continuity because, you know, Moses, he was the guy who the Lord appointed, um, you know, as, you know, as his prophet and representative, uh, you know, for, for Israel. And so you can see here a really nice chain of command, right? God instructs Moses, Moses instructs Joshua, and Joshua carries it out. Um, And I think, okay, that, I mean, that's a fine observation, but I think there's a couple of things to be learned from all this. I mean, first of all, you'll notice that Joshua, unlike Moses, doesn't seem to like talk directly to God a lot. Um, and I think especially, you know, in a, uh, in a time and an age, I think where we have, you know, um, so many people put a, put a priority on, you know, kind of what I would call a soft direct revelation from God, if that makes sense. You know, people often talk about it. I'm not trying to cast, um versions on on them but many well-meaning uh christians will say well, you know god laid this on my heart or god communicated to me he said this to me he revealed that to me and um we have such a priority it seems like on in american christianity on you know hearing words directly from from the lord but shouldn't we pause here a moment and notice i mean amongst other problems uh that joshua doesn't need that <laughs> that uh That whatever the Lord spoke to Moses, he regarded as coming from the Lord. In other words, it's not like Joshua has a lot of instances where God directly speaks to him, but that, um, you know, that essentially the sort of um, revelation passed down through Moses because he's a faithful
0: witness, that was good enough for Joshua. And in many ways, yeah go ahead. Well, just gonna say, I just got to say, I think that that's a fantastic point and I, I want to explore that, but we do need to take our break. So, so we're going to leave off with that, that Joshua receives a mediated word from the Lord and he listens to that word of the Lord through Moses. That's going to provide a connection for us still today. You're listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. We're talking with Pastor Jeremiah Johnson this morning. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Oh, 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 Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Tuesday, October 25th. We're studying Joshua chapter 11, verses 1-23 to 23 with Pastor Jeremiah Johnson. He serves at Glory of Christ Lutheran Church in Plymouth, Minnesota. Pastor Johnson, prior to the break, we were looking particularly at verse 15, where the Lord commands Moses. Moses has commanded Joshua, and Joshua does. And you were making what is a fantastic point, that Joshua receives this word of the Lord as a mediated one. Certainly there are times where Joshua hears directly from the Lord, chapter 5, you've got the commander of the Lord's army. Even in this own, in this very chapter, verse 6, the Lord said to Joshua, but as you said, Joshua also has the word of the Lord through Moses, and he receives that mediated word. Why is that still important for us today? Pick up where we took a break. Right. So maybe to put it a little bit differently,
1: the mediated word is not a second-rate word. And I think we need to be really acutely aware of this because, I mean, I even had this you know instance, uh, somebody asked a question about some, uh, in my confirmation classes last week uh, about one of her friends. And she just basically said, well, w- w- why do people insist on this? And I think what is really, what's obviously dangerous about that is, uh, you know these claiming a direct revelation from God, um, you know, well, that often leads it very much up to your own interpretation. But maybe the flip side, the positive side of this is we can be confident in mediated words. In other words, when we say in the divine service, you know, thus says the Lord, when we actually, you know, hail this as God speaking to us, that we don't have to think that this is somehow like, well, gosh, if I oh, if I could only hear God's voice directly. We need to remind all of our people that this is God's voice. I and mean, even though it is mediated through your pastor, when it comes from the scriptures, you are hearing no less than the living voice of God. And that we can actually, you know, we can take that to the bank, so to speak. And um, I mean, because that, that's what underlies our confidence in, um, you know, in, uh, in the preached word, but also in the sacraments as well. Because those are all mediated words as well. I mean, Jesus does not not come down directly and speak in a disembodied voice. This is my body, this is my blood. But it's no less his words, his voice, when the pastor is the one who gets to uh, to speak uh, speak it and he ends up uh, being what through whom is being spoken. So, I mean, all the great stuff that's going on on Sunday mornings is all mediated. And we don't, you know,
0: we ought to give thanks for that and not, we should never apologize for it, that's for sure. Mm, that's right. Yeah. And and when it says, you know, that this is what the Lord commanded Moses and Moses commanded Joshua, not only was that a verbal command that Moses gave to Joshua, but Moses wrote stuff down yeah, too. I yeah. mean, keep in mind that Moses wrote down uh, the first five books of the Old Testament. And and a lot of that is, I mean, that's there for Joshua. So, you know, just like we have the written word of God, Joshua had the written word of God too. How is, I mean, and you, you have a few more thoughts here, I think, Pastor Johnson, on how does, how does this connection with Moses speaking to Joshua, Joshua doing, or the Lord, Moses, Joshua. How does that even point us toward Jesus?
1: Yeah, I mean, in many ways. And first, we, uh, we recognize that Joshua and Jesus, they, you know, they've got the same name. Uh, Yeshua is, is uh, Joshua in Hebrew, and the, Jesus is just the Greek version of that. And so he's, he actually shares the same name, which I think invites the comparison, although I'm sure there were plenty of Joshuas back in Jesus' day. So it's not like just because you got the name that somehow means something. But um, I think there's an interesting contrast though between Jesus and Joshua, even though they share the same name. And that is uh, Joshua is the one who's clearly under Moses, right? And he's the the successor of. But in many ways, Jesus gets portrayed, not just even as Moses' equal, which is kind of a step above Joshua, but of course, you know superior to uh, uh to Moses right because um if you remember in uh oh where is it it's in Deuteronomy chapter 18 uh you know Moses predicts that there will be one you know like him who will speak the word of god uh, to his brothers and uh and on transfiguration, who do you see who shows up? It's Moses and Elijah. And Jesus is talking with them about his own exodus, kind of showing his, you know, I mean, Jesus is the true mountain guy and Moses is just the secondary one, right? Um, and then of course, there's um, there's a number of other places where Jesus himself not only proclaims, but is proclaimed as being superior to Moses. There's, of course, the, the classic Hebrews three passage, which talks about Jesus being superior to Moses because Moses only points ahead to Christ. And so this is where, in many ways, Jesus is not just Joshua, but he is sort of the, the true Joshua.
0: Oh. Hmm. Well, I mean, it, just to, you know, if we, if we were to put Jesus, or if, if we want to see Jesus in verse 15, then we should, we could read it like this, just as Jesus commanded Moses his servant. Yeah, yeah. So Moses commanded Joshua, and so Joshua did. Ultimately, yeah. the, the Lord who is speaking here, that's, that's the Son of God. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. So. So we're always going to see Jesus in the Old Testament, and, and we see him certainly here in, in Joshua chapter 11. After verse 15, then we get to a, a bit of a summary here, and we get a description of geography and, and how Joshua has been making war a long time, and, and a mention again of the Gibeonites. You mentioned them earlier as the, the one group that attempts to make peace, and the way they went about that, you know, we, we had that conversation in Joshua 9. Uh, but in verse 20, uh, we come to these words that are maybe difficult for us to hear, it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts, that is, the inhabitants who went to battle against Israel. This language of the Lord hardening the heart, that shows up in the book of Exodus. It's it's difficult for us to hear. And even, even earlier, you alluded to this already, Pastor Johnson, in verses like verse 14— where the text says that every man they struck with the edge of the sword until they had destroyed them. These are, these are often troubling to us and, and give us a picture of God that, that perhaps we're just not sure what to do with. And in fact, I, I received a, a listener email from, from Steve asking about this very thing. So I'd, I'd like to, to have you address it for us, Pastor Johnson. This is what, what Steve writes. It says, The Lord tells Joshua to completely destroy the inhabitants currently residing in the promised land. Men, women, children, all livestock, etc. cetera, Are all to be destroyed. These are very harsh words from our Lord. There is no mercy for the people living there. Scripture does explain that the people were living in great sin, doing very evil things. God has every right to judge them. But God doesn't destroy the people himself, like Sodom and Gomorrah. He has Joshua and the Israelites carry out this destruction. Yet God just gave the Israelites the commandments not to murder, not to steal, not to covet. Also, we know God does not desire the death of a sinner, and Jesus says we should love our enemies it's difficult to understand how God could approve of or direct the complete destruction of an entire group or race of people. Could you please talk about how to reconcile the destruction of entire groups of people, even little children in the promised land and, and reconcile that with the 10 commandments, such as you shall not murder and to reconcile that with what Jesus teaches us. So pastor Johnson, that is, is Steve's question. I think it very much relates to some of the issues at play in, in Joshua 11, I'm gonna let you have at it.
1: Yeah, and a very excellent question it is, although not not an easy one. He's uh, certainly not the first one to ask this question. Let's start with the hardening of their hearts. The first thing we should notice about the hardening of their hearts is that the Lord, whenever the Lord hardens hearts, it's always in response to someone's rebellion, not as a cause of. It, it, as you already alluded to it, the classic example, of course, is is Pharaoh with the Israelites. You know, he was the one who first hardened his heart multiple times as, you know, the Lord sent, uh, you know, plague after plague after plague, which is, which is really the opportunity for Pharaoh to change his mind. That is to repent and he doesn't take it. And eventually what the Lord does is he's the one who ends up hardening Pharaoh's heart. In other words, he essentially, you know, to use New Testament language, sort of gives him over to. Uh, to the uh, the tempter, right? He gives it. He gives him over to Satan. you might say, and so here too, uh, you know, as Steve rightly noted, is that this is not just out of the clear blue sky with a bunch of really innocent people. Now, I mean, now mind you, um, from a broad theological stance, are any of these people r- righteous? Are any of them innocent? No. I mean, like just like uh, Romans chapter three tells us. You know, should the Lord choose it? He, he's in his own, um, right to punish any of us in this way. And so that should really give us, a, you know, a pause that to some extent that, you know, are they innocent? No, they're not, but the real, but what the scriptures have made very clear is that the, the Lord has indeed been patient, uh, with the Canaanites. If you remember all the way back to Abraham, you know, there's a uh, several comments, um, about how, like, uh, in Genesis fifteen, um, he uh, he specifically mentions that I believe their their sin had not come to what is it? Something like um, full measure, I believe, is the phrase. And yeah, it hadn't been filled up. Yeah, or filled something up. Like that's that. right. And so, I mean, the Lord's got his eyes on this for a long time. He gives them sort of every opportunity, and that's like, you know, and that's what like seven hundred years prior. And so it kind of reminds you of the passage from the New Testament. You know, the Lord is not slow, as some would consider slowness, but that, you know, he's basically waiting for people to repent. I'm paraphrasing, but that's the gist of it. And so, you know, the real, I mean, I think you could equally ask the same question why does the Lord give them so much time to actually repent? Um, there's a couple of details, though, that Steve asked that I still want to address specifically. First of all, he says, you know, he's just gotten the command not to murder. And this does actually not qualify as murder, uh, at least uh, not the way that it's been framed up, simply because the Lord's the one who gives them the command. Um, You know, it might be, if we had more time, it'd be really fruitful to talk a little bit about Luther's little tract about whether or not a soldier can be a Christian. There's lots of good stuff in there that actually would kind of cross apply. But the short of it is, is that there's a word for killing and there's a word for murder in um, you know, in the old testament. And this does not qualify as murder because this is not one person seeking vengeance, you know, upon another. They are simply following the orders of uh, you know, of their Lord and King, you know, uh, and so now is it possible that they might have had, you know, some kind of other sinful disposition in their hearts? Sure, but we are we don't know that or we're not told that. Um mm-hmm. But I think, and uh, oh, one other thing probably also to mention as well, is that also notice this is not a universal um, what's uh, oh, permission for them to like kill any nation. This is all very specifically limited to the Canaanites, and um, and we do we should keep in mind that you know, even though um, this is not good that they all have to die. I think this actually tells us something about the nature and the perniciousness of sin that um, much like how Achan, his whole family ended up dying uh, you know, for his sin. I think we sometimes underestimate how infectious sin can be. And as I, I mentioned earlier, that we do notice that the, uh, the nations and the peoples whom the Israelites do not drive out and or kill, they end up becoming a thorn in their side. But I think there's one more point to add to all of this. And I think this is always something we always, um, I'm not sure how to say this, but perhaps keep in balance, keep in the back of our mind and perhaps put very bluntly is that um, the Lord is not subject to our sense of justice. I mean, in the sense that, um, you know, the Lord being the Lord um, at the end of the day, he can do as he chooses that, in other words, our oftentimes our, opposition to the way that the Lord has acted is sometimes just as much that we feel like he's being mean according to our standards. And I think we need to be really careful. I'm not saying that Steve is doing this, but I think this is a propensity of all of us is to try to essentially stand in judgment over the Lord's own actions as if he's answerable to us rather than the other way around. So I think that's an important point we always need to keep in mind.
0: Mm. Well, I think Paul makes a similar point in the letter of to the Romans, particularly right. Romans nine and eleven through eleven, where he deals with the the salvation of Jews and Gentiles and why why those who received the promises originally weren't weren't saved. And even, you know, I mean, as we think about this, I, I think as we ask questions like this, which as you said are good questions to ask, mm-hmm. and, and certainly difficult ones, they are intended finally to drive us to Christ crucified. And and you know, from the letter of the Romans where where Paul makes that beautiful turn in chapter three, and he's he's talking about, you know, there's no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. It's it's hard to break this up. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And I think these these words that follow really apply to what we're talking about. Paul says this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he has He had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God is, is righteous. What he does shows his righteousness. He does show himself to be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. I really think that that, again, it, it doesn't make the question like, Easier, I suppose. Right. But I, I think it does point us ultimately, as you said, to the Lord as the one who who is just, who does do what is right, and and to save anyone at all is is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. I, I think I, I we talked a little bit about this previously in the book of Joshua, that you know, even in the midst of all of these people being destroyed and, and receiving what their unbelief has earned them. You do have that wonderful example of Rahab mm-hmm. in in Jericho, who at the at the eleventh hour is brought to faith and and so is saved. And it, you know, I mean, there I think is a great example of of what Steve points out in his question that God doesn't desire the death of the sinner. And even right before Jericho is about to be destroyed, here is Rahab and her family who are brought to faith and so they are saved. And it, I mean, even at this this late hour, it, it's not too late for the Lord to do his his saving work. And Rahab's evidence.
1: right. No, I
0: think yeah. you, so so
1: go ahead. I was going to say you illustrate well the um, the observation that Luther made that really apart from Jesus, um, you know the Lord, especially in the Old Testament, is is mystifying and um and even terrifying. But I mean, this is where we as we see you know Joshua pointing ahead, you know to Christ himself. This is where we see these glimpses then of this unexpected and frankly glorious mercy you know like you said with Rahab and, and such
0: so, Steve, that's a fantastic question. Uh, thank you for writing in. It's always a joy to hear from our listeners, to hear your questions, do our best to answer them on air. Pastor Johnson, thanks for, for picking that up for us. As we as we look to the rest of the text, we mentioned this toward the beginning, that Joshua 11 does start to wrap up the part of the book of Joshua that deals with the conquest. And, and toward the end, we get some wonderful language, I'm looking in verse 23 particularly, where it says that Joshua gave it, the land, for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments, and the land had rest from war. Talk about particularly the matter of the inheritance and then the the land having this rest from war. Right. I see so much
1: gospel there in just that last half the verse. Uh, Because inheritance, of course, this is terminology that's familiar to us from the, uh, the promise with Abraham. And so we're not just even though it keeps saying Joshua did exactly what Moses commanded, we're going back even further than that because um, and we we hear certain verbal echoes of, of that actually scattered throughout this entire chapter. But, you know, God had promised, we, we have to remember, God had already promised this land to Abraham in Genesis 12 and 15 and 17. Um, and they've just been waiting forever. And I mean, I think, You know, perhaps in our more cynical times, especially if I would have been an Israelite back then, I would have said something like, uh, (laughs) yeah, Lord, uh, so anytime you want to get around to giving us that lamb, that'd be great, right? I mean, it's hundreds and hundreds of years later, but the Lord, he doesn't forget his promises. And so... I think it's, it's fascinating that even after Joshua does all this, and I, I kind of wonder in like an alternate universe, if Joshua was like, a, was an unfaithful, narcissistic guy, like if he would have tried to you know, force himself to become king and take all this by force, but he doesn't, he gave it as an inheritance to Israel, according to the tribal limits, which in our words means he's acknowledging the promise first made to Abraham. It's a gift from God. It's not plunder from conquest. And, um, and so really this is all coming back full circle to the promises of Abraham, because these are the people of Abraham. These are the people of God. And, uh, and so they're finally getting what, you know, what has been long promised to them. But I also think that that a phrase, the land had rest from war is a, is a fabulous one because Hebrews four picks this up, um, it said, let me just quote it. It says, for if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. And so then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest is also rested from his works as, uh, as God did from his, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. But uh, what's implied here then is, okay, he, he gave them rest, right? Um, And so, oh, everything's happily ever after, right? No, the Old Testament, the Lord continues to talk about a day of rest, even though here they had settled actually in their rest. In other words, where everything is supposed to be, where everything is divinely normal, where everything is put right into its place where it's supposed to be. And yet there's a certain uneasy settledness about all this that points us ahead to the fact that This is not the last chapter. This is not the kind of like, and they lived happily ever after to the end of their days, right? That in other words, they are anticipating another day, a truer rest later on. And I think this is where we are Therefore, Hebrews invites us um, because we're used to usually seeing Jesus as being representative of the people of God. You know, the, uh, the classic phrase is he is Israel reduced to one, which I think is a fine way of articulating it. You know, he is God's people on whom he's put their name, and he's finally the, fu- the ultimate representative of all of it. And likewise, then, he also becomes, uh, he himself is the temple, like he says in, in uh, John chapter two, which, by the way, is the, uh, the other place where he puts his name. But I think the dimension we sometimes forget, the, sort of the Old Testament connection, is that Jesus is also the land. He himself is the promised land. He, and, and he ultimately is the promised rest. And so by essentially dwelling in him, and I think once again, to, to go back, I feel like every time we talk, we end up in uh, revelation, especially at the end of it. But there's this, uh, this beautiful picture in, uh, in 21 and 22, where, uh, the heavenly Jerusalem comes down and what is, um, what is the fate of Christians but to be there in this new promised land, this new Eden, so to speak, in the direct presence of God, you know, where, the, where Christ himself is there as the lamb. And uh, there we are in his rest. Why? Because Jesus himself is the promised land. Wherever he is, is the promised rest that he's given to us and, and, uh, and that we will inherit. And so this is not the final inheritance. The final inheritance is coming. Um, All of Joshua's conquests are only pointing ahead to
0: Christ, who is the true rest that we will receive, finally and ultimately on the last day. But even in, in the book of revelation it's, it's Revelation revelation 14:13 where oh, sure. blessed are the dead who die in the lord from now on blessed indeed said the spirit that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them and this is one of the mm-hmm. the idea of rest is one of the classic ways of of speaking about the the christian you know the death of the christian and then finally the you know the resurrection that this is eternal rest for us that that joshua i mean it's a it's a foretaste here so it's it is a good moment of of relief here at the end of chapter 11. We shouldn't miss that. There is a, a sense of, I mean, they get to to breathe and, and take that rest quite literally in Joshua 11. But as you said, it's not the end. We know there's more coming and the rest that is given here is only temporary. We look forward to that eternal rest that is ours in Christ. And and so when we read at the end of Joshua 11, the land having rest from war. We look forward to the rest that we have in Christ fully on the last day in the resurrection. Got about three minutes here, pastor Johnson to help wrap things up. As you think about Joshua 11 and kind of the the full scope of what we've talked about, why what's important about this text for us as Christians help us to wrap things up this morning. Right. I think, um, at least as I was thinking
1: about this, and I know I shared with you, we could probably wrap it up as salvation from and salvation to. And I see highlighted here, maybe not explicitly, but highlighted here between um the Exodus and now the conquest of Canaan, sort of two sides to the same coin. Um, that on the one hand, um, uh, you know, Joshua, which means Yahweh saves, the Lord saves, um, You know, and uh, in Moses, then Moses, um, if you remember back in what is Exodus, I believe chapter six, uh, the Lord reveals how his name will be manifest when he delivers his people from their slavery in Egypt. And that's one of the really important ongoing themes is that what is he he's delivering them out of something. They are slaves. They are not their own. They are being oppressed by the Egyptians and the Lord will free them from that. But he never, the Lord never frees them simply from something. He always frees them to something. And I think that's something that has a pretty profound applications for the church today, because I think we all really like the idea of being freed from, you know, things like sin and death and slavery and that we're going to, uh, you know, be raised again with Jesus and into new life. But I think Joshua really illustrates that they are saved into the promised land, that they are actually saved. Into into their their covenant inheritance and um, so that that it's not just a matter that they are no longer slaves because that's only half of it. But now that they are heirs, they are children. Right. And so they go, you know, because you could be freed as a slaves and just sort of like let off on your own. All right, go, you know, go out in the wilderness, find your way. Um, but the Lord doesn't do that. He takes them to be His own, and I think that that mirrors perfectly sort of the the dual nature of Christ's own salvation for us. Because yes, we're freed from our sins and from our death and from our condemnation, right? He binds this the strong man, the devil, but He also saves us to be His own children. Um, you know, I think Luther puts it beautifully in the uh, the Lord's Supper. He says, he says that we're free so that I may be His own. In other words, not just my own his own his child and live under him in his kingdom and serve him in everlasting righteousness innocence and blessedness so it's not just saved from but saved to and that's the holy proper life that we actually start to first experience in the church but once again to make the jump to the end time that we will fully experience finally when um we are all raised from the dead and live in his eternal kingdom uh, in his direct presence And so that's what I see Joshua pointing ahead to.
0: Pastor Jeremiah Johnson is pastor at Glory of Christ Lutheran Church in Plymouth, Minnesota, helping us today with Joshua 11, verses 1 to 23. Pastor Johnson, thanks for being our guest today. Hey, no problem. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about the book of Joshua, send us an email kfuo at kfuo.org. It is always a pleasure to hear from you and a joy to answer your questions on the air. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.